welcome to the Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Joyce Gilbert, the Medical Director of the Providence St. Peter's Sexual Assault Clinic and Child Maltreatment Center. We'll be talking about how the clinic has helped thousands of survivors and their families find their paths to healing. And we hope this information can be helpful for you too. Remember everyone, if you have questions for our experts, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. And if you use the hashtag Future of Health, that's hashtag Future of Health, we'll be on the lookout for your questions. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Anyone affected by sexual assault, whether it happened to you or someone you care about, can find the support on National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. Okay, let's get started by welcoming our guests. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Gilbert. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Would you start with just telling us a little bit about your background? Yes, I am a board-certified pediatrician after uh, attending medical school and pediatric residency training program. After that, I practiced primary care pediatrics in a small community in northern Idaho for about 30 years. I took care of children from age birth to 18 with acute care problems, chronic care problems, injuries, illnesses, and also... um, because when I moved to town, the local physicians were looking for a doctor to help with uh, child abuse investigations, I became the doctor that took extra training and then did the child abuse examinations and went to court for those children in the two northern counties of Idaho. Wow. So you have a lot of experience, both from a medical perspective, but I know you also have a lot of experience with youth in your personal life. Tell us about that. Yes, I am blessed to be a mother. I have six children, and uh, all of my children have come through either adoption or health and welfare. Um, I have a lot of knowledge in trauma and how trauma affects children. And so as I chose to become a parent, it was one of the things that I could do well. And so we do trauma-informed care at home 24-7 never turns off for you it never turns off and yet it becomes routine and it's a an excellent way to parent a child with or without trauma well, I want everybody to know even though you can't see her she has six kids she does not look exhausted and she's happy so it can be done so today we're here to talk about the sexual assault and child maltreatment center here in town could you tell us a little bit more about the center itself yes Um, I was uh, hired as the medical director for this clinic uh, five years ago. Our clinic started in um, 1991, and we are part of a child advocacy center. Child advocacy centers came about because it is better to give a child wraparound care in one facility rather than having a child go to multiple facilities. So within a child advocacy center, the best national model is that there's medical personnel, there's law enforcement, uh, prosecutors that are on the special victim team for sexual assaults and child maltreatment, CPS, and counseling. Our center is called Monarch Children's Justice and Advocacy Center. So that's our umbrella where all of us work underneath that. 
Since uh, 1991, we, Providence has supported us in being part of this Child Advocacy Center. And we, myself as the medical director, and then we have five nurse practitioners who see children for their medical exams. You mentioned wraparound care. What does that mean? So when a child has been injured in any way, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse or emotional neglect, um, that child will come to, um, the information will become present to somebody. Uh, a teacher might call in to CPS concerns about a child. CPS might get referrals from other family members or even from strangers. Law enforcement might get involved because a crime has been committed. In any of those situations, a referral then comes to our clinic for that child. Our children are also referred to us by any medical professional. We cover the five counties of Thurston, Mason, Lewis, Grays Harbor, and Pacific counties here in Washington. And so any CPS, law enforcement, or medical provider in any of those five counties can refer a child to us. And how many children are you seeing on a monthly or annual basis? Annually, we see about 350 children in our clinic. We have two satellite clinics also. We have one in Lewis County and one in Pacific County. Um, we get about 550 referrals a year. We don't have to see every child referred to us. Sometimes we need to give information to parents or to caregivers. Sometimes we need to help direct them to other services that may be more appropriate for the concerns that they have. And what does constitute child maltreatment? Boy, that's a really good question. There are state and national laws that uh, tell us what makes up child maltreatment. The federal law is that if anybody is harming or potentially going to cause harm to a child, then it is considered child maltreatment. Sexual abuse is a bit more specific about the exploitation or sexual touching of a child. And anybody under 18 years of age cannot give consent. So a 15-year-old might think that they want to be touched sexually, but they can't give consent. So therefore, if an older person is doing that, that would be considered abuse. Wow, okay. So what, um, what support does the clinic provide? We provide um, support to the people who are calling in. So CPS or law enforcement or medical personnel are going to call in with a concern. We gather the information and the data that they have to give us and then we do further investigation before we even see the patient. Our clinic is comprised of the medical providers that I just explained, but also of medical social workers. And it's the job of the medical social worker to gather the information. They'll get medical records, law enforcement reports, CPS reports, any other information that would be pertinent that we should have before the child comes to the clinic. The other thing the social worker does, which is so important, is to get information from the caregiver or the parent, and then to also support the caregiver or the parent through this process. When a child discloses abuse that a parent did not know about, it's devastating. Oh, I can imagine. So the social worker's skill, even just over the phone, is to help the parents through an acute traumatic event. Sometimes we need to actually put in place some resources for the family and the parents before they even come to our clinic. Most of the time, just 
having a conversation with a social worker on the phone and getting some information about what the next steps are aids the family then in processing what's going on. You mentioned physicians and social workers. How many people comprise the center here? So again, myself as a medical director, I have five nurse practitioners that work um, throughout the clinic, not everybody on the same day, two medical social workers, uh, front office staff, and then within the Monarch Children's Justice and Advocacy Center, we also work very closely with the forensic interviewers and the counselors. And you talked about the support that you provide to the people who are calling in. Do you also provide support to the survivors of the abuse? We do. So the children, as we gather all this information, we then make an appointment for them to come see us. They are accompanied by what we call a non-offending parent or caregiver. So the person who may have done a harmful thing to a child is actually not allowed to come with that child to the clinic for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. So a non-offending parent or caregiver will bring the child in and we provide support immediately. They walk through the door and it's what we call a child-friendly environment. It's not scary. Prior to child advocacy centers becoming the norm, a child might have to go to a police station Mm -hmm. to give their history. And then they might have to go to a CPS office to give more history. And then they might have to go to a doctor's office that wasn't really set up for the type of things that we do. So children were getting scattered care in many areas within their community. We have one area where they come with a very child-friendly environment. One of the things that makes our environment so wonderful is we have a facility dog. Oh, how fun is that? It's awesome. His name is Astro. And Astro can help in every step of a child's interactions with us. Oh, I can imagine. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask more questions about Astro. And then we're going to dig in a little bit more to the support that uh, is provided by the center. We'll be right back. Am I the only one who's been mistaken? Because you're the only one who keeps me waiting. Do you know how much time I would be saving if I didn't let you into my head? Bye. 
And we're back on the future of health talking with Dr. Joyce Gilbert today. And right before we left, we started talking about some of the services you provided. One of them is a care dog named Astro, and I need to know more about Astro. Astro is awesome. Um, Astro fulfills so many roles in our um, ability to care for the children that we do. Um, so Astro can be present during any interview with a child. Uh, we have multiple ways that a child might get interviewed. A forensic interview is um, a way to gather information for law enforcement for the purposes of um, figuring out if a crime was committed. So a forensic interviewer works in our Child Advocacy Center and Astro can be present during a forensic interview to help the child stay calm and stay focused. Astro is best used with the children who are maybe 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that ballpark. If we put Astro in a room with a four-year-old, Astro is actually a distraction. I can imagine. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but with those, uh, you know, middle and older school-age children, Astro tends to be very, very calming, and he is well-trained. Astro was trained by Assistance Dogs Northwest, which trains dogs specifically for facilities like ours. So he had to go through very rigorous two years of training. Wow. And then uh, donated to our clinic to help support these children. So he's used in the forensic interviews. He can be used in our medical interviews, which is a slightly different process where we're getting information about the medical history of the child. Astro can actually come into the exam room with the child and help calm them while they're getting a checkup. Astro can be used when the prosecutors need to talk or the defense counsel needs to talk to a child prior to going to court proceedings. Astro can be used in court and sits at really? the foot of the child in the courtroom, is not seen by anybody else other than the child, and the child is just able to be calm, to calm. and be uh, present for what's a very, very scary process for a child. Um, but we sounds amazing. He is amazing. We have stories of you know children doing so much better in every sure. area because of Astro. And then, of course, Astro is used in counseling. Mm -hmm. So. We are one of the only centers in the entire country that uses Astro in every aspect of a child advocacy center. Wow, he must work some long days. He works long days, yeah. but he gets good rewards at the end. I bet he does. Yes. I bet he does. <laughs> he has over 40 commands, and we really? will teach children how to do tricks with Astro. So they'll be taught how to hide a little morsel of a treat, and then Astro fetch or Astro go find, sure. and he'll go find, and they're so thrilled. Well, I was going to say I was very bummed that you didn't bring him today, but I feel like he has a lot of more important things to do, so yes. it's okay. He it's is okay. busy every day. And you guys are busy every day. And I we know are busy There's a day. lot more that goes into it than what Astro does. Yes. So as a child comes into our clinic, again, child-friendly waiting room, um, if they need to have a forensic interview, they are in a room with the forensic interviewer that is, again, child-friendly and warm and cozy. And the people who need to be... Um, involved in that interview process or in some way hear what the child has to say don't all have to be in the room with the child mm -hmm. so um, just the forensic interviewer is in the room and everybody else is in a closed circuit TV room so there's a camera in that room and there's audio in that room but again and the child is made aware that that's going on but law enforcement CPS other physicians anybody else can watch what's going on and hear the history from the child without all having to question the child so again one of our goals when a child has 
experience traumatic events is that we don't re-traumatize them through the process of helping them to get through. And this is one of the really important ways of not re-traumatizing a child. If they have a forensic interview, that may then be followed by their medical interview and medical exam. Sometimes there are very positive things that we do when we have a forensic interview first and then the medical aspect. Sometimes it's very helpful to have the child come for the forensic interview and come back a week later a different time. for their medical mm-hmm. stuff. Right. So again, it's a case by case. We don't do ex- exactly the same with every single situation. When the child comes in for their medical evaluation, again, they're met by the nurse and the social worker, mom or the dad or the caregiver are given support by the social worker while the child is having their medical interview. And then again, the child is given the choice to have the parent or caregiver in the room for their medical examination. A medical examination for a child sometimes makes people a little nervous Mm -hmm. when we're talking about potential child abuse or sexual assault. I want to reassure all listeners that it is no different than any other medical evaluation we would do on a child. Nothing hurts and nothing is scary. And the children are happy when they come out of their medical checkup. We do some very specific and sensitive evaluations on these children, but we don't harm them in any way. Another really special thing that we have in our clinic is that we have volunteers who make quilts. And every child who comes to our clinic goes home with their own personal quilt. Really? Yes, all handmade. And again, you imagine, we see 350 kids a year. That's a lot of quilts. It's a lot of quilting, for sure. It is. But we always have quilts for our children. Are they fun themes? Fun themes, fun colors, um, different sizes, small and big. Um, Again, a wonderful service that our community supports. Anything to make it a positive experience. Exactly. Wow. Are all of the people that are working with them specially trained for pediatric interaction? Yes. Okay. And what would that consist of? Is it additional hours? Well, again, um, myself as a pediatrician, specially trained, and with, again, some extra special training in child abuse pediatrics, my nurse practitioners have all had to go through um, training through Harborview to be able to do pediatric sexual assault examinations. And uh, two of my nurse practitioners are actually certified as pediatric sexual assault nurse examiners. Um, Most of the nurses are also certified as adult sexual assault nurse examiners. A sexual assault nurse examiner is again a specially trained person that can do collection of forensic um, uh, data on a client who has um, been sexually assaulted. From the age of 14 on, the sexual assault nurse examiner would be doing those exams in an emergency room setting. And children younger than 14 would always come to our clinic. Okay. Okay. How common is abuse in this area that you're seeing? So national statistics are always hard to to come by. Um, The sexual assault national statistics are that one in four girls and Mm -hmm. one in six boys Mm will be sexually assaulted by the time they're at 18. Those are horrendous statistics, and yet only one in 10 of the children who are sexually assaulted will tell. Are reported, basically. Exactly. And children tell for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because we've educated them well, and they know that there are no secrets, and that touching private parts of the body are not okay, and they immediately tell. However, most people know the person who is sexually assaulting them as a child, 
And so there's been grooming and there's been a comfort level with that person. And there's concern on the child's part that when they tell, things are gonna happen. And so many children don't tell right away because of that process. The national average for when a child will disclose sexual abuse is eight and a half years. After it began? No, the age of eight and a half. Oh, age and a half, okay. Age of eight and a half because those children then have better language skills, have more life experience, they've gone to school, they've maybe had sleepovers at other people's houses, so they have um, an example of what other people have done that may be different than their family. We clearly get children disclosing at every age. We've had children as young as three able to tell us about their abuse. We've had children all the way through their teens. Um, I always tell people though, a child is in charge of when they will disclose what's going on because they have to feel safe and they have to feel believed. The most important thing is that the first time a child tells anybody about physical abuse or sexual abuse, they're believed and then they will go on to continue to disclose. Is that the one piece of advice you would give parents or any, anybody in their life? That, that is the one piece of advice I would give everybody, professionals, parents, teachers. When a child says something, they must be supported and believed. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for all the information you're giving us. We're gonna take one more quick break and we will be right back. Here I go, here I go, feel better now, feel better now.
And again, today we're joined by Dr. Joyce Gilbert. Um, we were talking about some of the, uh, the things that you see in the clinic and the way that you handle the, the youth. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the signs or the symptoms you see? Because we know that abuse can happen on all levels and in many ways. Um, what are the most common signs that you see that, that people maybe would look for? Sure. Um, again, child abuse and, and sexual abuse um, generally are not something a parent comes to tell us about unless they've been told by the child that's going on. But sometimes parents wonder if what they're seeing in their child might be a red flag or a clue that something's going on. So when we educate parents about that, we say things that are different for your child, things that have changed for your child are maybe some red flags. In the younger age child, it's going to be sleep, if your child has been sleeping well and is now having many nightmares or having trouble falling asleep or trouble staying asleep, maybe that's a sign that something's going on in their life. Eating, you know, again, for a young child, that's such an important part of their life. If all of a sudden their appetite or their diet has changed. And then behavior, that's a huge thing when you're between the ages of birth and five. And so if that child's behavior has been in a certain way and all of a sudden you see it changed and different, clinginess, um, more um, outbursts or temper tantrums than normal for that age and stage of life. Um, being withdrawn, a change in speech and language. We see developmental changes in children who are being uh, traumatized in any way. So if they've gained some developmental skills and then all of a sudden they've lost them. All of those things are red flags that you'd want to talk to your medical provider about. And there can be a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons might be some trauma or adversity in their life. As you get into school age kiddos, then you have social skills and academic skills. So in addition to sleep problems and eating problems and behavior problems, you might also see the child having more difficulty completing tasks at school, having more difficulty with their social interactions, so getting in trouble at playground time or unstructured time. They might be getting reports from principals or teachers about difficulties at school. Um, and then in the teenage years, as we know, teens are tough, right? And, and even a teen with no adversity and no trauma in their life is finding their way. But the teenagers who have had adversity and trauma, um, possible abuse, those kids are struggling even more. So they might start, um, again, having school issues and social issues, but they might experiment with drugs or alcohol. They might do things that are really out of character for who the parents knew that child was. So any of those red flags would then be very important to talk to a primary provider and or a counselor about just to see if there's something underlying. As you were talking kind of through the ages, I, I found myself wondering, is it is it less likely that if a teenager's experienced abuse in the teen years that it started at that point? Is it usually something that's been happening earlier in life? That's what we find. Um, we find that the acting out behaviors actually at any age can be from prior experiences, but most common with those teenage years, if they've felt as if their power has been taken away, as if they don't know how to deal with what's happened to them in the past, then they may lash out in angry fashions, behavior fashions, and they may be trying to help themselves through the pain they're experiencing by experimenting with drugs and alcohol. So, sense, yeah. 
Uh, there are some pretty scary statistics out there, but 80% of teen suicide attempts are secondary to trauma. Really? Yes. That is very scary. Mm -hmm. So when we see a child, a teenager, with any suicide thoughts or suicide attempts, you know, one of the things that first come to mind is, what's happened to you in the past? Absolutely. Why are you in this space now? And it's great that there's a place like you have for them to actually have that conversation. Yes. We also train um, emergency room doctors and primary care doctors in that trauma-informed care. So trauma-informed care means that we are aware that when bad things happen, there's that potential for long-term effects. Um, in the mid-1990s, Dr. Floody and Dr. Anda did a study called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And in that study, they correlated bad things that happen to children wind up with adults who have long-term chronic medical conditions, an increased incidence of um, substance abuse and um, incarceration, and actually life expectancy is decreased. Life expectancy? Yes. If Every, you, you had me, everything made sense <laughs> up until that, and I guess it makes sense if I think about it, but I hadn't thought through that. If you have an ACE score or an adverse childhood experience score, the score is from zero to 10. If you have a score greater than six, your life expectancy is decreased by 20 years. Really? Okay, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? It does. Really negative. So let me tell you the flip side of that. We now know through science that resilience or your innate ability to cope with bad things and the relationships you have with people help modulate that. We also know that when bad things happen to children, we can change the trajectory of their life by doing what we call trauma-informed care. So a child, a six-year-old, might have an A score of six, and that's not a death sentence. At the age of six, if we know that that child has had that amount of adversity and trauma in their life, and we institute trauma-informed care at school, at home, in every environment for that child, we change the way their brain is wired and we change the way their body has reacted to those traumas. So this is great for kids who do speak out or somebody does you know, bring it to your attention. What do you think are the long-term impacts of untreated child abuse? Oh, that's, I mean, that's where Dr. Folletti and Dr. Anda's study went. It went to middle-aged, middle-class white Americans is what was in their study, and the mean age was 55. And if you were 55 years old and you had an ACE score of four or greater, the risk, the chances that you already had a diagnosis of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, or stroke was phenomenally increased. Wow. If you had an ACE score of six or greater, the chances that you had a diagnosis of substance abuse disorder or a mental health diagnosis was markedly greater. They have statistics that, again, would blow you out of the water, and they were the first to do an ACE study, and it's been repeated multiple times by multiple investigators in almost every country of the world. This is real. Wow. Mm-hmm. So how has that changed, then, education for providers or emergency rooms or pediatricians? Really great question, because it's been 21 years since they published. They published in 1998. It's taken a long time for us to all envelop this and utilize it appropriately. Science has caught up with the ACE study in that science has now proven why. So we now know that when you have high blood pressure and an elevated heart rate because you're being abused and that continues throughout your childhood, that helps explain why you have heart disease and a stroke when you become an adult. Um, the high cortisol levels, the high hormone levels in the child's body 
is what's causing all those long-term effects. So we now know how to decrease those hormones and those cortisol levels by our trauma-informed care. If a child does not have trauma-informed care, they are more likely than not to grow into an adult with issues. And it's fascinating, but now that we know this information, if we share it with an adult, maybe somebody who's in their 30s and has been incarcerated or can't hold down a job or has been in a mental health institute or has trouble with relationships, and we say, what happened to you in the past? And we get the history, and then we give them that information. Your brain got wired. Your body got changed because of your trauma. It's like the light bulb goes on, even for that adult. I bet, yeah. Yeah, and that adult can make changes in their life. You are never too old to learn about ACEs. You are never too old to make a change based on the trauma that happened to you as a child. Obviously, I would like to get my hands on the two and four-year-olds. Right, right. right. Because <laughs> you know that you can change Life's those children. Mm-hmm. Right, but 14-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 27-year-olds, 45-year-olds. I had a grandmother in my clinic at the age of 73 tell me about her sexual abuse. Really? And it changed her life. Still has life experience. Any age. Right? Exactly. That acknowledgement must be so hard, though, I would think, the older you get and the further away from the abuse. Because I think that there's a, an aspect of that, but I also think, again, that light bulb that goes on when you understand why. You know, because so many people get blamed for their behaviors and for their lack of success in certain things. And when we can explain to them, this is why you do it this way, you can change how you see this, it's it's freeing for them. I bet, just losing the fear and the guilt and the frustration at yourself, self-blame, yes. Yes. Well, we're gonna take another break and when we come back, we're actually gonna take some questions from social media. Okay. I just met you Seems like yesterday You opened up your eyes And I recognized your face You know that you're the one That we've been waiting for We're gonna keep you safe First time I held you in my arms I knew I'd love you all the way I took you in at night Another day has passed Every week goes by a little faster than the last It wasn't so long ago We walked together and you held my hand But now you're getting too big to want to But I hope you'll always understand That I'm always gonna lift you up And I'm never gonna let you down No matter what you do I'm forever proud of you I love you forever now I hear it Through your eyes I see A world full of magic Full of possibilities You know as well as anybody How tough this life can be 
You've got so much strength inside you A strength I pray you'll never need And I'm always gonna lift you up And I'm never gonna let you down Time flies by Forever now I'm always gonna be right here Always gonna cheer you on I'm always gonna have you back You're never gonna be alone And I'm always gonna lift you up No, I'm never gonna let you down And we're back with Future of Health. Just a reminder to anyone who's been affected by sexual assault, whether it happened to you or someone you care about, you can find support on the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, the number is 1-800-656-4673. We are back with Dr. Gilbert, and we decided we would take some questions from social on this very important topic. Um, so we're going to start with a question from Tiffany from Facebook, and she says, Are there ways to volunteer with your clinic? I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse, and I would love to help other kids learn that they can get through it. Um, that's an excellent question. Um, because of the nature of what we do, um, that hands-on day-to-day work with children is really done by our hired professionals. Um, but the volunteerism is kind of in the background. So as I mentioned before, quilts, um, we have people making quilts, we have people making pillowcases, we have people donating clothes because frequently we'll see children in situations where they're poorly clothed and we set them up with a whole new set of clothes to leave our clinic. Um, we have um, the ability to uh, donate any sort of stuffed animals that have to be new um, and, and in their new package. But those are all just wonderful things that a children can, child can take with them. Um, we also have, um, uh, in our clinic, we um, house the SANE program, the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner program, and we have adult size uh, sweats and clothing that they can go home from the emergency room in. So I think those are all the ways that we try to help people donate. Um, the last thing that we just started this year is that our uh, survivors of any abuse who are getting therapy through Monarch Therapy in our Child Advocacy Center frequently will find a weighted blanket is a very helpful thing to calm them, to sure. put them to sleep, to help with the nightmares. And so we have um, uh, gotten some donations for purchasing of those weighted blankets. So that's another way that we direct people if you wanted to give a monetary uh, donation, it would go into that funding. So you can you can donate money, basically. You can yes. donate products. You can, okay, wonderful. Well, that's great. Um, we have another question from Twitter. It comes from Clive, and it says, if I think my nephew might 
be a victim and his parents don't believe me, who would you suggest I talk to? That's another great question. Um, if you think that somebody, a child is being harmed in any way, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, or neglect, um, each state has a um, call-in number for their local CPS, Child Protective Service Division. In Washington, our number is one eight six six and harm that's one eight six six three six three four two seven six when you call into that number you are giving information to a protected entity that is required to check it out and they're going to find uh, information out about what's going on in that family and or to that child um, there are state laws about being mandatory reporters. All of us in medicine, all teachers and educators are mandatory reporters. However, in my world, every adult is a mandatory reporter. If you see something or hear of something or are told something by a child that you think is not safe and not okay, please call and report that. Thank you for that very valuable information. Um, here's another question from Facebook via Rosa and she says, how involved are the police in most of your cases? Do they know you're the right place to bring victims? It seems like your organization is probably the most qualified, but I wonder if you're getting all the right people. Another great question. <laughs> and outreach education is how we make sure that we're getting the referrals from all the right people. So law enforcement are all trained in their training about what to do if they see something happening to a child or if they're told about something. We report to law enforcement when a child comes and tells us something that is a crime. So you, something gets reported to law enforcement if it's a crime or we're concerned it's a crime. Something gets reported to Child Protective Services if we're worried about the safety of the child. For almost every child we see, we make reports to both Child Protective Services and law enforcement. And the real crux of your question is, do law enforcement people know that they should refer the patients to us and the answer is yes we have very close relationships to all of the law enforcement personnel in all of our five counties you touched a little bit on outreach education there and I know that that's a, a really important topic to the work that you do um, what kind of training do you have for people outside of law enforcement uh, we have quite a bit of training. Providence as an entity supports outreach education and in fact we have an outreach education coordinator as part of our clinic. Our outreach involves many things. We have outreach on um, how to recognize and react appropriately when we think a child is being sexually abused and that's a national program called Darkness to Light. It's an adult education program. Providence puts it on free of charge every other month here at Providence St. Peter Hospital. And it is taught by facilitators who are trained nationally to present the program, uh, support the people who are in the program, and uh, direct the conversations. The other things that we do involve outreach to uh, law enforcement, outreach to CPS, to uh, train about uh, physical abuse and or sexual abuse. And we have done some outreach to educators in our counties um, because the educators see these children for prolonged periods of time sure. every day. And they're dealing with some of the behaviors that children who face adversity are having in school settings. And they may not fully understand exactly why these behaviors are happening or what to do. Uh, so we started three years ago doing outreach education to all the elementary schools. 
Uh, to date, we have hit more than 2,500 educators wow. and school counselors with our outreach program. And it's made a huge difference in their ability to do trauma-informed care in their um, schools. We also do outreach to medical professionals. We talk at clinics. Um, I talk both at uh, regional level and state level at conferences. Uh, we talk to emergency rooms and urgent care centers. Um, again, talking about physical abuse and sexual abuse in most of these outreach education programs. Well, that's a, a good segue to a question we got, which was, um, are the signs the same for all types of abuse, physical, sexual, and neglect? Um, that is a very good question because all types of abuse are adversity and the signs and symptoms I was just talking about um, are how children tell us that bad things are happening to them. The one thing that might be um, uh, specific to sexual abuse is that sometimes when children are being sexually abused they may have sexual acting out behaviors, they may have knowledge of sexual activities that are greater than their developmental age. So if we see or hear about that we would be concerned about the possibility of sexual abuse. But otherwise everything else, all those other symptoms I talked about could be present in any form of adversity. Well, let's take one more question um, and it says if you were a sorry if you were a victim of child abuse is it more likely that you'll be in a victim of adult abuse? And I assume that would maybe be in a relationship with with a spouse or something like that. I'm not sure quite how to understand that one. Um, so I'm going to interpret that in a way that if you grew up being abused as a child are you more likely to get yourself in a relationship, an abusive relationship as an adult? So um, intimate partner relationship, domestic violence type of thing. And it's very interesting because the statistics are actually the other way around. When and if in intimate partner violence or domestic violence occurs, those children show the same symptoms of adversity as a child who's being physically abused there's adversity in their life, there's stress in their life, and that toxic stress can show up with all those same symptoms. A child who is physically abused is at no greater risk of physically abusing their children as they grow okay. up. The statistics actually prove that that did not follow through. And in fact, um, being sexually abused as a child does not make you a sex abuser as an adult. So those are good things for people to know and to understand. Um, but again, adversity, as you grow up as a child and you are in adverse situations, you may not grow up then to be the kind of adult that you want to be. Having long-term relationships, being able to be successful in a job, that type of stuff, but it does not necessarily mean that you'll grow up to be an abuser. Those are really good myths that you've just busted because yes. I think I grew up hearing that, right? That if you were beaten as a child, you're going to beat your child. If you were sexually assaulted, you'll probably be, yes, wonderful things for you to share. Um, we have one more question. I know we're about running into a break time, so I'm going to ask the question, but we'll probably pick it up when we come back because it actually segues into a lot of questions I had for you, which uh, Kevin from Twitter asks, are you seeing more kids due to human trafficking and are minority kids more likely to be victims? So when we come back, we're going to let um, our good doctor here answer that question. We'll be right back. Look inside your heart. 
Future of Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and I'm joined by Dr. Joyce Gilbert today. And right before the break, we took a question from Twitter about um, are we seeing more kids due to human trafficking and are minority kids more likely to be victims of abuse? Wow, those are really loaded topics. Thank mm-hmm. you for asking those questions. Um, I'm going to go with the minorities first. So um, if we look at the statistics of what gets reported to Child Protective Services in every county, every state of our nation, it is weighted more with minority children. But the question is, is that because minorities are abusing their children more? Is that because minorities are in poverty situations more? Is that because our resources are not adequately developed to assist uh, our minority population? And I think that there are so, there's so many variety of reasons. As we study that in child abuse pediatrics, we don't think minorities injure their kids more. We think that they are in situations where anybody has a difficult time with parenting their children and keeping their children safe. Yes. Um, So um, just like I think our incarcerated minorities are greater than our um, non-minorities, the same kind of thing happens in child abuse reporting. As far as trafficking, we are definitely seeing trafficking. We live in the state of Washington in the Seattle region where trafficking is a huge problem. And trafficking of minorities has been going on for a while before we were all well aware of what was happening. We are much more aware of it now. Providence has set up some really uh, innovative ways for us as medical providers to start paying attention to that. We have now built in our computer system a way to ask the right questions. Our emergency room staff and doctors are all being trained in how to recognize trafficking and then what do we do when when those red flags are there. Um, How do we support the person that we're seeing as a patient, but also how do we involve the authorities to help in the situation? So um, trafficking is is obviously increased. I think our awareness and our understanding of it has increased, and now our ability to know what to do with it is definitely improving. And are you seeing an increase in trafficking in youth as well? Yes. Yes. And so Providence is definitely doing more in the human trafficking, and I can actually attest to this because I'm a a Providence patient, and I've been asked questions um, about my safety and and different things, and so I've definitely seen it come to light. 
Have you seen anybody in the local community that you've actually been able to pull out of that kind of an environment or, or to, to raise a red flag and maybe help other people get out of that situation? I think through our SANE program, our sexual abuse nurse examiner programs, as they're seeing the clients in the emergency rooms, that has definitely occurred. Um, and I think, again, with that increased awareness of the nurses and the staff in an emergency department, we are impacting the lives of those people much better. So how common are child advocacy centers like yours? Um, so it was 1986 when um, in Huntsville, Alabama, the prosecutor decided that we could do this better. And uh, he developed the very first child advocacy center. Since 1986, that has spread nationwide. And so this is a nationwide model that we practice and follow here in Olympia. Um, in the state of Washington, every county can have a child advocacy center. And when I say can have, they don't all choose to because it requires leadership, people with a passion, and then uh, the ability to finance it through the federal dollars that are available. So grant writing and fundraising at the local level is how child advocacy centers come about. The leadership is the most important thing. There are child advocacy centers that are accredited by a national accreditation process, and then there are child advocacy centers that don't choose to go through the rigor of becoming accredited. Ours has been nationally accredited since its inception, and we continue to do that on a yearly basis. What are the rigors? It's tough. Um, again, you have to work together as a team. And that team has to include the five entities that I stated, as well as having what we call a multidisciplinary team meeting on a regular basis. And that multidisciplinary team has to involve many aspects of our community. So law enforcement from each of the law enforcement agencies are invited to the table. The prosecutors are there. The medical personnel are there. The advocates who work within the county come to our meetings. Sometimes a counselor will come uh, because that there's information that they can glean from the meeting. Um, we frequently will have uh, medical students or residents in our meeting. Um, we will have um, our criminal justice system and our uh, juvenile justice system will be part of that. Um, so many different entities come around a table with the impact and the ability then to give the best care to each child and each case of physical abuse, sexual abuse, or maltreatment. So you've been doing this for a long time. Yes, and I have. You've, you've made a huge impact. I know I've heard amazing things about you. Is there one patient or one kid or one story or one success story or one person that's come back to you later that's really stood out and said, the work I'm doing means so much? Not just one, but... I can't do just one because there are so many. I can't tell specific stories, sure, obviously, sure. for uh, reasons of confidentiality, but I can say that the work I do is impactful. The difference that we as a clinic make in the lives of children and adults is very impressive. Um, the knowledge that we now have because science has helped us know what to do with the impact of child abuse and neglect on children is, um, to me, this is the best time to be doing this kind of work. 20 years ago, it was hard work. Today, it's hard work. But today, we have a future that looks so much better for these children and these victims. Yeah, beautiful. So 
to the people who are listening at home or, or parents out there, if, if you're worried and you know maybe you're seeing a little bit of sign of aggression or maybe bedwetting, or how do I know what's normal? Where would I go? That's a really good question. Um, there are many resources out there. If you were to call a child advocacy center, you would talk to a social worker who could give you some pamphlets or some booklets or some book recommendations to read both for yourself and your children. There's also a website that we uh, recommend for parents frequently. It's called the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And that website was made by Congress after our 9-11 attacks. That website is updated on a very regular basis and has multiple areas of interest to parents, to educators, and to professionals. So a parent can get on that website and in the search engine say, uh, is my child showing signs of trauma? And it would pull up all sorts of information to help that parent decide, is this trauma or is this age-appropriate behavior? If you decide as a parent that you've, you're seeing some things that are worrying you, what's the next step? You would find direction within this website. They have a wonderful page about how do you pick a counselor to try to help your child through a difficult time in life. So uh, just Googling that and, and uh, surfing through all of that information is really helpful to parents. Give us the website one more time, what's it called? The National Child Traumatic Stress Network. I have one last question for you before I let you go. What's keeping you up at night on this topic? Is it funding? Is it a lack of, of staff? Is it a lack of volunteers? What's the one thing that people could do to make this better for you? Again, what the one thing? <laughs> the one Narrow thing. it down for me. <laughs> the answer is everybody should stop abusing their children. Right. Well, there is that. If that is not going to happen and I'm still going to have a job, the best thing we can do is believe a child when they tell us whatever they tell us. No matter what they tell us, believe them and support them and get them some help. That's what keeps me up at night. Wonderful. Well, again, blessings to you for the amazing work that you and your center do. It's such a wonderful program. Um, thank you, Dr. Gilbert, for joining us today. To everyone listening and sending in your questions, um, a general reminder, again, anyone affected by sexual assault, whether it happened to you or someone you care about, you can find support on the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE, which is 1-800-656-4673. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow Providence St. Joseph Health on social media at PSJH, on Twitter and on Instagram, and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, innovation, and the vital healthcare programs and social services we provide, go to future.psjhealth.org. Thank you.